You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. A lot of times what I like to do when we start a new book is sort of do an introduction to the book because uh, the background and, and the historical setting is so important. So uh, we're going to be in James chapter 1, verse 1 this morning, which is his introduction, his greeting. Well, let's just look at it. Here's our passage. James a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. So if you have any comments or questions, uh, that's our passage. No, there's a lot here. Getting into the importance of historical background. These are letters written by individuals who are inspired by God. God is working through them to communicate his truth through a specific individual to a specific audience. And the goal here is to understand what the author was moved by God to say. And so good interpretation starts with questions like, who wrote this letter? Who is James? What can we know about him? What, 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 Uh, were his responsibilities? What were his thoughts? Uh, What kind of person was he? Who are these 12 tribes scattered throughout Greece and Rome? Who is he talking about there? What is the purpose of this letter? What motivated James to sit down and write to this particular group of people for what reason? And all of this sort of boils down to getting at this, what was the author trying to say? You know, you'll sometimes run into people who say things like, well, you can make the Bible say whatever you want. And it's true. You can make the Bible say whatever you want. But if you want to understand the Bible, the question is not, what can I make the Bible say? The question is, is what is the Bible intending to say? And you can't make the Bible You can't mess with the intent. The author had a reason for saying the things that they did. And so that is the best way to approach the Bible is to say, okay, let me try to get as close to that as possible and then ask the question, how does that apply to me? So James, who history sometimes refers to as James the Just or James the Righteous, uh, that's a pretty cool tag to have... uh, historically, uh, we know was Jesus's half-brother. He was the biological child of Mary and Joseph. Of course, Jesus was the biological child of Mary, but his father was God. So James would have been his half-brother, which I think is a raw deal. Your older brother is actually the Messiah. I think that would be really rough. That would be hard, right? And uh, we actually find that Jesus's brothers in John 7, verse 5, during his ministry, don't believe that he's the Messiah, right? They are like hostile to this idea that big brother is God come to dwell among us, which is also, I think, understandable. What's interesting, though, is Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, that after Jesus was crucified, buried for three days, and then raised from the dead, he went and talked to James. Now, when I go to heaven, I want to see the replay of that conversation because I think it'd be super interesting. James has been like, you know, 
my brother thinks he's the Messiah. It's super embarrassing. And, you know, it's so sad. He died. Mom's so upset. And then he appears before him and is like, sup, bro? <laughs> now do you believe? Gives him a noogie. You know, like, <laughs> what an interesting conversation that would have been for James to be like, my big brother is actually the creator of the universe. And I was wrong. And he becomes a believer at this point, convinced, wholeheartedly convinced that his brother was a sinless man, the sinless manifestation of the creator God of the universe. He'd known him his whole life. And now he's realizing I've been wrong. James is not unlike Paul in the sense of Paul was a religious ruler who was like, it cannot be, Jesus is not the Messiah, he's persecuting the church, and then Jesus appears in front of him and says, wrong again, Paul. Same thing happened to James, who wasn't a persecutor of the church, but he was definitely not a follower of Jesus Christ. And so he has this sort of radical experience that sort of brings his whole perspective around, and he becomes a key leader, someone who Paul calls in Galatians one of the pillars of the church. The pillars of the church are Peter, John, and James. And he's specifically located in a position of authority of the Christian church in Jerusalem. So he becomes a very important leader in the early church. And one of the things we know about James is he had this great concern that our freedom in Christ not become a hindrance to Jewish people becoming Christians. And it's, it's a little bit difficult to understand. We have to understand in some of the historical context. You know, there were Jews living all throughout the Roman Empire, and they were very much taught to be set apart by the way they lived their lives, by the clothes that they wear, by the food that they eat, uh, by being circumcised. There were lots of different rules, different things that were designed to have them be set apart. And they were also taught that non-Jewish people, meaning Gentiles, that's just everybody who's not Jewish, were sort of dirty and filthy and immoral people that shouldn't be associated with. That's how they saw culturally who they were. They were the chosen people and the non-chosen people were kind of gross. But there were among those Gentiles, there were these people who had become aware of and engaged with the amazing teachings of the Old Testament. And they were people who had come from a Greek background, which was polytheism, believing in many different gods. And becoming in contact with the teachings of the Old Testament, they decided, you know what? I think this God is real. And he is true. And then they would say, okay, you have to be circumcised. And they would say, uh, I don't know if I'm that convinced. <laughs> and they were called God-fearers. These were Gentiles who believed in the teachings of the Old Testament, but were not prepared to become Jewish in the ceremonial sense. And so there were all throughout Rome and Greece, there were these God-fearing non-Jewish people who were really into the teachings of the Old Testament. And there would be a place in the synagogue where they could go and sit, separate from the chosen people, of course. 
And then Christianity comes along, the teachings of Christ, and Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And suddenly, Paul comes along, and what they're teaching all these God-fearers is, is that salvation comes by faith in Jesus Christ, and you don't have to be circumcised, and you don't have to change your clothes, and you don't have to refrain from eating meat sacrificed to idols. You can be a part of God's chosen people, literally a descendant of Abraham, by faith alone. And they, of course, were like, I'm in. I don't have to be circumcised, and I don't have to do these other things, and I could still be a believer in the Messiah and a Christian. And the people who had been raised Jewish, even the ones who were believing in Christianity, were like, wait a second. Is that true? These traditions that we've been raised in, these things that we've been taught seem like they're really important. And are they making it too easy for people to become Christians? And so there was this sort of debate and this energy that was going around around this. And James in particular, his view is, of course we don't have to be circumcised. Of course it's about faith alone. But if all these Gentiles and God-fearers all over the place are just running around saying, I'm a Christian, and eating meat sacrificed to idols and not being circumcised, that could make it more difficult for the Jewish people who aren't Christians to want to become Christians. So his focus was on his fellow Jews, and his concern was, okay, how are we going to interact with and how are we going to share the gospel with the Gentiles, which is what Jesus told us to do, without having a bunch of Jewish people be like, There's too many filthy Gentiles over there being wild and having parties. That's not my religion. And we see in Acts 15, this issue came up. And James was involved. Paul went to Jerusalem with this question, like, what do we do about the tension between these two people? And he explained to James what was happening. And James, as one of the pillars of the church and the leader of the church of Jerusalem responded to Paul and says, therefore it is my judgment that we don't trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. But we do write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled from blood. He's saying, listen, we don't have to, they don't have to be circumcised. I love, that's what he means by trouble them. Right? <laughs> he means circumcision of grown-ups. Right? He's saying, listen, It's not that they have to follow the law, but they should refrain from eating meat, sacrificed to idols. They should refrain from fornication, sex without marriage. They should be refrained from things strangled from blood. And this is so important. For, meaning because, why should they refrain from those things? Because Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him and he's read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Don't have the Gentile Christians go totally crazy because we're trying to reach Jewish people as well. And the law of Moses has been preached in every synagogue in every city in the Roman Empire, and the Jews that are sitting there are going to be looking at how the, the Christian, the Gentile Christians behave, and we want to reach them as well, which totally makes sense. 
And Paul agrees and says, good solution. So James, his concern is that the Jewish law has caused uh, some to be overly what we would call licentious. That the Gentiles are, are not thinking enough about their faith, that coming to faith in Jesus Christ should have an impact on the way that we live. And those throughout history who have read the books of, book of James have kind of come to a conclusion, many of them, that said he's too legalistic. He's too ritualistic. He's too concerned with the law. I don't like reading James because it doesn't fit with a lot of the other New Testament that I've read. It makes me uncomfortable. How do I think about James in light of Paul? And one of the things I just want to point out to you is if James, see, in the early church, one of the people, groups of people that Paul was contending with a lot were called the Judaizers. The Judaizers would follow around, they would show up in a city after Paul had been there, and Paul would say, salvation by faith alone, you don't have to be circumcised, you don't have to follow Jewish law, and the Gentiles would say, yay, we believe. And then the Judaizers would come in and say, no, you have to be ritually Jewish before you can become a Christian, and they would add to the gospel. And these were the guys that Paul would say things like, I wish that they would circumcise themselves all the way. Paul had, you know, a real problem with those guys. They were enemies of the gospel. And the question is, is James a Judaizer? Is he someone saying who's adding to the gospel? Or is he just concerned of the witness to the Jewish people who he desperately wants to have come to Christ? And I think the strongest evidence that we could have is that he was murdered by Pharisees. Pharisees were the legalistic, ritualistic teachers of his day. And extra-biblical sources tell us that James was beaten to death by Pharisees who were not the type of people who beat people to death for being legalists. They killed Jesus because of his message of grace. They killed Stephen because of his message of grace. And they did not see James as their ally. They saw him as one of the leading influences for bringing the grace of Christ to the Jewish people and they had to eliminate him. And that tells us a great deal about the way James was understood in his historical context. The audience then, well, the 12 tribes, that's just a name for all the Jewish people, the 12 tribes, who are dispersed, that word is diaspora, which is a, which is a word that for them would have made tons of sense. The, the, the word for Jews living outside of Israel was diaspora, the dispersed. And he's saying, I, James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, am writing to all the Jews outside of Jerusalem spread throughout the Roman Empire. And so it were the Jewish Christians or the Jewish Christians living among the Gentiles that he's specifically referring to. Wearsby in his commentary says at least 19 times James addressed them as brethren, indicating not only brothers in the flesh, meaning fellow Jews, but also brothers in the Lord. He's writing to fellow Jews who believe in Christianity. We have to understand too that at the time that this was written before 70 AD, 
Christianity and Judaism were not by most considered to be different religions. They were sort of different sects. Christianity in the early times of of the faith was, was considered to be Jews who believed that Jesus was the Messiah or people who had come to believe in Judaism that believed that Jesus was the Messiah. It didn't really split until the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, where it began to be considered two different faiths. So when James is addressing his brothers in this letter, he's addressing his fellow culturally Jewish people who are also his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And they're trying to understand how faith and action work together. Right? They were raised in this super legalistic, super ritualistic background, and they've been told that the law has been fulfilled by Jesus Christ and we can come to God by faith alone, and they're just trying to figure out how that works. They're living in the tension of, what do I have to do? What does it mean? What does it look like to be a, a, a mature Christian? Is Christianity Judaism or not? Do people have to be circumcised? Do they have to follow the dietary laws? They were used to living apart from the Gentiles, and now they're being told they should welcome them in as brothers in Christ. They're used to looking at them as though they're inferior, and now they're being told we are all one, Jew or Gentile, we are one in Christ. So this was a major pivot point for them from the way they were raised to understanding the way that God wants us to be. And they definitely had suspicion that Christianity to the Gentiles was easy believism, right? They were like, whoa, all you have to do is, you know, say you're into Jesus and you're in, you're a descendant of Abraham, you're a chosen people. You're going to have to unpack that for me. You're going to have to explain that to me. I don't, that goes against what I'm used to hearing and understanding. And if it's all about faith, okay, but what does that look like? What is a life of faith look like? What are the distinctives of being a mature Christian? These are the kinds of questions that James's audience would be wrestling with. How do faith and action, how do those come together? We can see that they do, but you know, it raises questions. Are there things that I have to do in order to be a Christian or not? And what does that look like? And I would argue that the theme of the entire letter, when we ask the question, why did James sit down to write this letter and what's the main point of the entire book of James? I would argue it's James 1, 21 through 22. He says, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and, the, what, and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely, merely hearers of the word that delude themselves. So I hope you can see what I'm talking about right here. What he's saying is, is grace is free. Let go of all of your rebellion, all the things that you're doing to rebel against God and receive grace. But receiving grace and sincere belief should have an impact on the way that you live. That just saying you're a Christian isn't enough if you don't really believe it. And if you really do believe it, it will begin to have an impact on how you live. That's what he's saying. 
Mottier, in his commentary, writes, James' uh, practical letter finds its focus in one set of topics. It's a letter about relationships. He calls us, for example, to care for orphans and widows, to be impartial to the, in our courtesy and care of others. He emphasizes the duty of love for our neighbor, speaking of it as the royal law. He scorns a profession of faith which fails in love and compassion. And he applauds the life that risks itself for the sake of those who are at risk. He warns against feelings which imperil fellowship and words which denigrate a brother. And we are discharged, and we are to discharge our honorable debts, guard our reactions, minister to the sick, share with the distressed, and urgently pursue those who stray from Christ. His letter is a unique catalog, quite a sustained emphasis on this single set of topics. You see, what he's saying is it's an incredibly practical book about the action of faith and what it looks like to live your faith out. James is casting a vision for what mature spirituality should look like. And yes, he's emphasizing the importance of character and the importance of action. The question is, is does he go too far? Does he overdo it and contradict things that we've read in the teachings of Jesus or in the teachings of Paul? He says things like in James 2, 17 and 18, he says, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith by my works. And for some of us, that's like, That sounds like law, especially, especially if you're from a legalistic background that didn't understand the gospel and told you had, you had to earn your way for salvation. You read that and you're like, mm, that's really right on the line. And there are people who have really struggled with this, primarily people who have come from those legalistic backgrounds. Let me show you the most famous one of all. The most famous one of all, his name is Martin Luther. Martin Luther hated the book of James. He tried to get it taken out of the Bible. (laughs) But to understand Martin Luther, we are all so grateful he was the father of the Reformation. If you're a Protestant, thanks Martin. Brilliant man, godly man, so much good stuff early in his life, not so much later. But he really struggled with James. He came from a legalistic background. He was a monk. He was told that you know, he had to buffet his body in the sense of throw himself down flights of stairs in order to beat the sin out of his body and that you earned salvation by being obedient. And so he's reading Romans and he's saying, oh my gosh, we've got it wrong. And he's expressing and understanding the freedom that we have in Christ And he's like, there's so much here that people haven't understood that a profession of faith is just that. It's it's confessing with your mouth and believing with your heart that Jesus is Lord. Then you will be saved. There's no conditions other than faith. And this is a revelation for his time because grace was attempting, they were attempting to snuff out grace with the works of the law. But then he read James and he says, St. James' epistle is really a right straw epistle. 
I don't know what that means, but it's not good. He says, compared to these others, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, 1 Peter, 1 John, for it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. Ah, well, that is a harsh critique. A letter of the New Testament has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. Jesus' brother, a leader in the early church, has nothing of the nature of the gospel. But I think, you know, we can forgive Martin because his background was this legalistic, harsh, you have to earn it background, and he's reacting against James because Martin is not really James's audience. And that's what we're going to see in this study. This is where the understanding of the author, the intended purpose, and the audience becomes so important for interpretation. And also, it becomes pretty important to understand our leanings What are we bringing to the text and our biases? Martin Luther was bringing as a bias the fact that he had been excommunicated by the Pope because he taught that salvation is a free gift of grace. And he read James and he thought, this sounds like the Pope. And he reacted against it and missed something very important. Remember, James was the leader in Jerusalem who wanted Gentiles and Jews to come to Christ, but he was concerned about the licentiousness of the Gentiles becoming a stumbling block for the Jews. We go to Acts 21, and we see Paul, toward the end of his life, came to Jerusalem, and he went and he reported to James again all that God had done to win all these Gentiles to Christ. And it says in 21.18, the following day, Paul went with us to James and all the elders were present. And after he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. What's James doing? He's saying, praise the Lord that so many Gentiles are coming to Christ. And by the way, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. And again, we read that and we're like, zealous for the law, James, where are you going with this? But he's saying, praise God that so many Gentiles are coming to Christ. By the way, a lot of Jews are coming to Christ as well. And we have a controversy that we need to work out. James actually says to Paul at that point, they have been told that you are out there telling Gentiles that they don't have to listen to and that the law of Moses is not important and it's wrong, that you've been teaching against the law of Moses, which Paul was not doing and Jesus was not doing. They were teaching about the fulfillment of the law of Moses, not contradicting the law of Moses, but many of the Jews have been told Paul who had been their hero, he was a Pharisee, he was a disciple of Gamaliel, he was a learned man of the Old Testament, he had been a persecutor of the church until he met Christ and realized he was wrong, and they were being told by the enemies of Paul, Paul's out there teaching easy believism. And James says, why don't you go and uh, show them that you still believe in the importance of the law? And he does a Nazarite vow, which is a fairly controversial thing. He does an Old Testament ritual. 
And you're like, should he have done that? Should he have not done that? Don't know. That's one we can ask him when we get there. Was it wrong for James to ask? Don't know. Was it wrong for Paul to do it? Don't know. These are, these are not perfect people like Jesus Christ. They make mistakes. And there's a good argument. James shouldn't have asked and Paul shouldn't have done it. There is an argument. It was okay for James to ask and it was okay for Paul to do it. Those are some things that we have to work out. But here's what's important is, were they at odds? Were they enemies? Did they have a different gospel? That we could clearly and definitively answer, no. No, they did not have a different gospel. They had some conflict to be sure. There were issues that arose, and we can see hints of that in the New Testament, but they had different callings to different people. And sometimes people who are on the same team that are called to reach different people find that their interests and their ability kind of conflict with one another. James was worried about the Jews in Jerusalem. Paul was worried about the Gentiles and all of Rome and Greece. And so their methods impacted one another, and sometimes different approaches are necessary with different people groups. We see this in this church sometimes. I think the best example I could think of is between student ministry and adult ministry. There's some tension there from time to time. I'll get a phone call from a parent, say, uh, some kids in a Xenos high school group were in my neighborhood TPing a house. And I'm like, uh. And they're like, my neighbors know about it, and it always happens on the night that their home church meets, and they're pissed, and it's hurting my ability to, to reach my friends and my neighbors for the gospel. And I'm like, okay, I'll look into it. And I, I talk to some of the high school leaders, and they're like, yeah, we heard about that too. And I'm like, yeah, but were you there? And they're like, no. But we knew it was going on. We left, and they had an overnight, and a bunch of the guys went out and did it. And I'm like, would you talk to them about this? It's, it's really important because we care about our witness to the neighborhood. And, you know, and they'll be like, listen, we'll talk about it, but we don't like coming down real hard on stuff like that because we feel like there's more important issues in these guys' lives than toilet paper. And we get that that's a problem for you, but like, we also don't want to create an environment where they feel totally, you know, like we're the authority and, and we're restricting and they can't do anything and there's no freedom. You know, that can actually become a hindrance to the gospel if they feel like we're, you know, on top of them for every little thing that they do. And I'm like, I get it. But you know what I hate is when our reputation as a church gets besmirched by a bunch of high schoolers doing stupid stuff and it makes our job harder. And they're like, yeah, we get that, but. <laughs> That's what James and Paul are like right there. Our student ministries loves the Lord and loves the gospel and they love the, lo they love the lost, whether adult or student, but their job is to reach students and my job is to reach adults. And we come into conflict sometimes about how to do things because of that. That's what's happening with James and Paul as they believe the same gospel. Look at what Paul did. Let me, let me unpack this a little bit. Here's Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, 1 Corinthians 9.20. He says, to the Jews I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews to those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. What's he saying? He said, when I'm hanging out with James, I'm with James. But when I'm hanging out 
with the Gentiles, I'm like the Gentiles. And that's not an inconsistent way to be. That's treating things that are cultural, that are exterior, as though they're not as important as central issues like Jesus Christ on the cross. Paul went so far with this that he circumcised Timothy in Acts 16, a very strict Jewish ritual that they had already said in Acts 15 didn't need to be done. But Paul meets this young man, Timothy, and he's like, man, this guy's great. I want to disciple him. I want to take him on the road. I'll be his mentor, and I want to raise him up as a leader. But Timothy's father was Greek, and he was uncircumcised, and he's like, listen, we're going to be working with a lot of people from Jewish backgrounds. I'm going to have to cut off your foreskin if that's okay. (laughs) And Timothy's like... I guess I'll be a Jew to the Jews and a Greek to the Greeks. And he does it. Not because he had to, but because it would open doors that would be closed otherwise, and that's how far they're willing to go. This isn't Paul saying circumcision matters in the eyes of God. This is Paul saying it matters in the eyes of men, and sometimes we do things to open doors. contextualization is what we're talking about. We have the gospel. Jesus Christ came as God incarnate. He lived his life among us and he taught us about love. He taught us about mercy. He taught us about compassion. He taught us that what God wants is a personal relationship with us and that the problem is is that there's a barrier between us and God and that barrier is our sin, our rebellion. That God is perfectly righteous and that he will not withstand evil. He must destroy evil and we're evil. But that he created us in his image that we're fearfully, wonderfully made and he loves us. And his answer then is to take the judgment that we deserve and bring it upon himself in the person of Jesus Christ so that our debt for our evil could be paid and we could receive the free gift of salvation of letting Jesus take the penalty that we deserve. And the way to do that, there is one and only one way to do that, which is through faith. It is turning to God and saying, I am a sinner, I need forgiveness, and I want Jesus' death to apply to me. And there is nothing else that you must do in order to be saved. Paul and James both believe this. And we, when we talk to different people from different backgrounds, would talk about this in different ways. If I were talking to someone raised in a strict religious background that was taught you have to do all these different things in order to be saved, it's not just faith, but you have to do all these rituals and you have to be a good person. And, you know, I would say, I'd be talking to them and I would be saying, no, you don't have to go to church to be saved. It's about faith. I'd be saying, no, you don't have to take communion. Communion is a testament about our unity. It doesn't make you saved or not saved. I would say, no, you don't have to give your money. Giving your money is good, but it's not a requirement. We can't add to the gospel. No, you don't have to go to confession. That's not a requirement. Grace is free. Now, if I were talking to someone who's never been to church... I'd be talking to them about totally different things because they wouldn't have these questions. I'd be saying, no, you don't have to dress like Laura Ingalls Wilder. (laughs) That's not what being a Christian is. No, you don't have to quit listening to pop music. That's not what being a Christian is. 
It's a very different conversation, isn't it? My question is, is are they contradictory? The answer is no. To some from a religious background, you might say, of course true faith will cause you to live a moral life. That Christians should be more moral people. Of course, living as a Christian won't be an easy life. It's a bumpy road. To someone from a church, an unchurched background, I would say, of course you're going to continue to struggle with sin. No, you're not going to be perfect. And no, you don't have to change completely in order to become a Christian. It's a, it's a lifelong process. And I would say there's real freedom in letting God into your life. And you should experience that. But if you took the conversation to the religious strict background person, and you took the conversation to the person who's never been to church, and you compared them next to each other without context, you might accuse me of being a hypocrite. You might accuse me of being at odds with myself. Or you might accuse James of being at odds with Paul, and Paul of being at odds with James, because they're talking to two completely different audiences. But they believe in the same gospel. Most of the New Testament is Paul. Most of it's written to the Gentiles. And that's what we're used to. That's what we're familiar with. And most of us, frankly, are Gentiles. We don't come from a Jewish background. We don't come having been raised under the Jewish law. And so we're very, very comfortable with Paul in the New Testament. We're used to Paul's approach. And then we hit James who's got a different audience, a different background, a different contextualization, and we're like, oh! But there's so much that we can learn from James. James is inspired by God to say the truth. And so we should approach him from the standpoint of God has preserved this because he wants to teach us something. In fact, I would argue, reading the book of James will tell you a lot about yourself. Your reaction to James will say a lot about you and your tendencies, right? It, de- it depends on your background. If you're reacting against legalism, if you're like Luther or Paul, you're going to read James and you're going to be like, oh, I don't like this, right? But if you're somebody from a background who's worried about Christians who never do anything, and that never have any outpouring of their faith, and you feel like, you know, Christianity has been horribly marred in our culture because people aren't really living like Christians who claim to be Christians, you might be reading like James and be like, wahoo, get him, James! That's what I'm talking about! It depends on where you're coming from. It depends on your background. Paul and James are not at odds. They have different missions, but the same goal, the same God, and the same gospel. And as we study through this book, you will see, I hope, how well they harmonize. It's very important that we understand the free gift of grace and that we defend it. It's at the very heart and core of who we are. James died defending the free gift of grace, attacked and murdered by the enemies of the gospel. It's very important that we understand that true faith, if you really believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, it will begin to have an impact on the way that you live. That real sincere faith 
does bring about change in our lives. It's it's really important that we understand how to harmonize different parts of the Bible because the Bible claims to be God's word and claims to have one central authorship, one mind that's a rational mind that cannot contradict itself. It has to fit together or it's not the word of God. It's really important that we understand that it is valid to take different approaches with different people from different backgrounds as long as we don't change the central message and the truth of who God is. I guess I would say in way of application, if you lean towards James, if you're like James, and you read James and you're like, yeah, get him, James. Be careful not to judge those who don't live the way that you do. Be careful not to be self-righteous about how far short other Christians fall compared to you. If you're like James, don't add conditions to the gospel. Be very careful about how you talk about things and be very careful that you're not creating situations where people misunderstand what it means to become a Christian. If you're like James, be patient with the rate at which others change. And be able to rejoice at small changes and small victories in the character of people who are new in the faith and who are growing. If you're like James, let your example of good deeds be an inviting example to others. I sometimes meet Christians who are very disciplined, very moral people, okay? But they're so severe, they make you uncomfortable. They just look at you like, I was up at 5 a.m. this morning spending two hours in the Word of God. And you're like, ooh. A mature Christian is going to have a radical life. They're going to be a very disciplined person, but it's going to be an attractive discipline. It's going to be something where people are like, maybe God would make me like you someday. Not like C-3PO with an anger problem. (laughs) This robotic, mechanical thing is not... God is a warm God. He has a a flesh heart, right? And that His followers are being conformed into His image, which is an inviting image. If you're like James, remember that spiritual growth is a process. You might be a certain way, ways down the road in that process and others may not be as far as you, but you're on the same road. And that's important. James said one, and James 1, 19, 22, this you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Don't be somebody who thinks you're a Christian, but your Christianity has no effect on how you live. On the other hand, if you lean towards Paul... Remember that your faith is best understood by the way you live. Talk is cheap. Don't talk to me about love and talk to me about mercy and talk to me about goodness and then live your life as though you didn't believe in any of those things. Show me. 
and have an emphasis on the importance of the things that we do and the way that we live matters. If you lean towards Paul, enjoy your freedom, but don't flaunt it towards other Christians who don't feel that same freedom. Don't look down at them in judgment because they don't have the same understanding and the same freedom that you do. Paul talked about that all the time. Don't be a stumbling block to people who are still troubled in their conscience by rules. Use your freedom to show the greatness of who God is, to glorify Him. Paul wrote in Galatians 5, 13 through 16, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you're not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. How similar that is to what we just read from James. It's just to a different audience. So, Wearsby in his commentary has a pretty good outline for where we're going to go. Next week, we're going to be in chapter 1 talking about being patient. The marks of a mature Christian. A mature Christian is patient in his suffering. And that's where we're going to go next week. These are the commentaries I'm using. One of them, at least, is available out there if you want it. Or you can get it online cheaper. Um, If you want to read along, you're more than welcome to. Let's draw the line there. Thank you, Father. That salvation is by faith alone. And thank you that when we come to you in real faith, you give us the power to become more loving and more merciful and more compassionate and to love what's good. And we just ask that you would help us in that process, God. That we, it's easy to see how far we have to go. Um, but we just... Thank you that you're there and that you're involved and that we have a community of people that are committed to that together. And we pray for those who don't know you in our city. We just pray that we can represent you in a way that's clear and true and makes you pleased. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.